Every morning uh, when we chant the Heart Sutra, we begin with uh, Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara when practicing deeply the Prajna Paramita, the Paramita of Wisdom. The Prajna Paramita perceived that all five skandhas are empty in their own being and was saved, or maybe we could better say was liberated from all suffering. Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, when practicing wisdom, practicing wisdom, had, realizes that the five skandhas are empty and is liberated from all suffering. So, I've been uh, in this series of talks, I've been, been uh, uh, examining what I call the four tenets of Buddhism, and they're all showing up in this statement. It's, it's uh, the bodhisattva who is uh, committed to transformation is liberated from suffering by practicing wisdom. And this bodhisattva is Avalokiteshvara, which is the bodhisattva of great compassion. So in those four tenets of transformation, liberation, wisdom, and compassion, you know, Avalokiteshvara stands for this actualization of the bodhisattva, which is oriented toward benefiting all beings. So I'm just summarizing what happened in the last week. So if you weren't here, you have to you'll find your way into it. <clears throat> and so here you have a formula, basically, of Mahayana Buddhism in the first uh, sentence of the of the Heart Sutra. And what's important to me in presenting Buddhism is that it's. It's a language that can seem obscure at first. It's like Bodhisattva, Bodhikiteshvara, the Prajna Paramita, the five skandhas, realizing that they're empty. You know, who understands this? And you begin to understand it by doing a practice, and we'll talk about that, by doing a practice and inhabiting your experience, or you begin to inhabit your experience in a new way, and this beginning of inhabiting the experience in a new way frees you from trying to just interpret the language. And if those pieces of experience come together, all of a sudden it's like the language opens up and the language becomes a pointer to that experience. So it's very frustrating if you're educated in the West to think about things that you are presented with like a sentence and you want to interpret it. You want to make sense of it by using concepts that you already have mastered to make sense of this, these new concepts that are now coming. But this is not enough. <clears throat> we need to enter into our experience and also enter into it in, in a new way so that this language can make sense. Now, we've been talking about liberation, and I presented the Four Noble Truths, and I talked about Zazen as uncorrected mind, and uh, this, is, is, this is all to, to begin to make sense of what is suffering, what are we trying to be liberated from, etc. And now, I'm using this phrase of the Heart Sutra to uh, show you that, again, here's an idea of if you practice wisdom through the five skandhas, which is a teaching, I'll talk about it, you can actually realize what it means to be liberated from suffering. So I want to spend some time with the five skandhas as one of the models of how Buddhism thinks that we can actually 
realize for you. And um, this is something which you can't find in any book, really. It's not presented anywhere. This is fascinating to me. This is a kind of, this is really an esoteric teaching. You'll find something written about the five skandhas. But usually what you find written about the five skandhas is this first aspect, which I think the five skandhas can be talked about, which is the components of consciousness. The five skandhas, by the way, is the teaching in the sutras that is mentioned the most often. It's, so it's, you could say from this quantitative analysis, it's the most important teaching of the Buddha. So the, the skanda, the word skanda means heap. It's sometimes uh, translated as aggregates. So there are the five aggregates. There are the five heaps that make up consciousness or the mind. And there are five heaps, or they are also one, it's also one heap with five, you know, five heaps that make one heap that makes sense. So you can separate the components of consciousness, but when you put them into five heaps, but when you put the five heaps together, you have the heap of consciousness. So this is how, sometimes the skandhas are, are translated as aggregates. This is how consciousness aggregates, uh, aggregates through the five skandhas. And then, there is a practice of de-aggregating consciousness, which is the second way we can talk about the skandhas. How you enter through meditative practice into each of these heaps as a kind of experiential domain, and you pull apart how consciousness works and begin to enter into the into its components in a new way. You you find a way to inhabit those components directly. Not as thinking about, but directly through meditation. And the third way you can talk about it is that a liberation takes place in which, the, in which these aggregates, in which these components of consciousness are transformed. They now don't just function in service of consciousness, uh, piling up to make the pile of consciousness, but they're actually functioning autonomously as domains of experience that are begin that can be available to us in a new way, not just in a sort of instrumentalized function for consciousness. So this is this is really just an overview to give us an idea that this teaching is really important. It's not like, oh, God, yeah, I understand, you know, now I'm enumerating the five kind of form, feeling, perception, impulses, consciousness. Oh, those are the five skandhas. I, I can recite those names. <clears throat> those names point to a dynamic of liberation. But in order for it to be a dynamic of liberation, we have to learn to inhabit those five, You know, you could say without attachment, but we can see what that means. <clears throat> so let's just, let's just, you know, do the first way of speaking about this skandhas, which is how are these five the components of consciousness? So the first one is form. And the way I like to understand form, or I'm suggesting that we might understand it, is, this sounds a little complicated, materiality capable of being sensed. So materiality is, you know, stuff. <laughs> one, of the, one of the characteristics of materiality is that when something is material, it... it you know, two, two material things can't occupy the same space. I'm doing this. This is the wrong gesture. They kind of like, they bump into each other. 
Now, already here in defining form as material materiality capable of being sensed, you you see that Buddhism has a what what we could technically call a phenomenological orientation. It is not looking at the world from a third person perspective. It's not physics. It's not biology. It's not science from an objective point of view. We are studying the materiality that we are capable of sensing. This also means there is materiality in the world that we're not capable of sensing. UV light, radioactivity. It doesn't mean that that materiality doesn't have an effect on us, but we're not capable of sensing it. At least not in the conventional way of the five or six senses, if you include mind into the sensorium, the six senses. So form is the materiality that we are capable of sensing through the sensorium. This means we don't have direct access to existence. We have access to our experience of existence. This means existence is a mystery. There may be a lot out there that we are not capable of sensing, which we've discovered, you know, certain apparatus have been built to translate UV light into light that we can see, or radioactivity into sound, or radio waves into images. Hello. Okay, let's let's say that's enough to say about form. It's a starting point. It's the starting point of our experience of the world. And there's a there would be a lot to say about this, how the senses functioning, how you're inhabiting the senses, how are the senses surrounded by mystery, etc. And then the second skanda is um Welcome. The second skanda is um, that we have a feeling about that. In the traditional setup of this teaching, that feeling is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. So I want to leave it at that. And I'll say much more about feeling later, but There's the starting point of the senses, which reveals the world in a materiality that is capable of being sensed by this human being. Now, there's a different world that's being revealed to an insect, or a bird. We live in a human world because of the human senses. And we also live in a human world because of the feeling that is added to that uh, to those sense impressions, the sin you could say the the sense impressions, and then there are the sensations that this body is capable of producing in relationship to what is being sensed. The first kind is perception, and I like to I like to define perception as perceiving something as something. And this is this is actually quite complex. It's you know, it's not that complex, but it takes some time to un, unpack. Um, when you look at an object. Actually, just doing this is so interesting. You know, you can see how one-sided perception is. 
because you're seeing this side. You're not seeing this side. There's never a way that we see the totality of anything because we always have a perspective on things. Everything we perceive is one-sided. You can see it in this simple example. This is very easily overlooked. You know, people think that what they think is the whole truth, you know. They don't see that an opinion, and now I'm extrapolating from this simple example, every opinion is one-sided. It has to be. Because when you see it this way, you're not seeing it that way. How come that we're taking our opinions so seriously when they're so one-sided? Anyway, you're seeing this object. And if you focus on it, which I'm inviting you to do, you, you know, focus on this point. You can see that you're kind of lifting this object are you bringing it into focus, which I'm now describing as lifting it out from the background? Because the background is out of focus, and what you're focusing on is in focus. So not only is your view of this object one-sided, as we just saw, it's also extremely partial to the whole field. It's only this aspect of the whole field, because in your perceptual focus, the whole field falls away as you're focusing on this. I call this the first something. Perceiving something is a focus within a field. And then to perceive this something as something is to give it a name. I'm perceiving this something, which is a focus in a field, as a dish, as a bowl, as a lid, you know. Depends on how we're using it. As an ashtray, as a spitball. I'm not doing that. Anyway, you have some options of what you want to call this. And so you see that this is just in a simple sense, like how, how perception is a construction. First of all, it is the selection of a focus from a field. Then it is the selection of a perspective. And then it's the selection of a name. And it's not just a name. First, it's the selection of a concept. What is it for? A bowl or a lid? Is it covering something? Or is it receiving something? So it's the same focus, but now the concept turns it into something for us, and then I'm giving it an appropriate name which, when it is a receptacle, it has a number of functions that I have received different names. Bowl, you know, cup, ashtray, etc. This is perception, and perception is layered, as I'm trying to point out here. Perception is constructed, and perception can be deconstructed. Now, the fourth skanda is the most difficult to translate. I said impulses in my first enumeration because this is how we chant it in the Heart Sutra, but impulses is maybe not the best translation. So I'm still wrestling with what to call it. Uh, my teacher calls it associations. Maybe it is also, maybe another uh, translation could be conditionings. Skanda... The Sanskrit word skanda points to, the etymology points to how things are put together. So it is, the best thing I can come up with right now, it is basically a habituated way of living um, 
conditions that you could describe as when this, when this, then that. When this is perceived as a bowl, you, you are prepared to associate, this is by associations, to associate a number of things with it, like, you know, soup or some other, or ice cream, you know, whatever goes into the bowl. When it is a lid, you're associating a cup or a bowl with, that can be covered with it as a lid. If we have made a perception of this as a lid, which this is actually meant to be a lid for a bowl, but we often use it as a bowl. I mean, in this place, so it's a perfect object that I just found here for this talk. I didn't plan this, but you know, here it is, perfect. If you take it as a bowl, then a whole different conditioned world opens up. And if you have a belief that it is a bowl, you will see it as maybe a, a violation of reality to use it as a lid. Do you understand? This happens all the time in other contexts. If you have certain belief systems about reality, reality has, you know, reality has to follow the belief. And if someone breaks this belief, breaks up the conditioning, they're erratic. Like they, they can be excluded from the community because that's not supposed to be, that's not supposed to happen with this object. So how our world is put together is through those kinds of conditions. When this is this, then that follows. This action needs to follow. This belief is appropriate. This social interaction surrounds this perception, etc. But it's also associative in the sense is that when you have one word, I'm not going to go through all these exercises, you can do this yourself, but say you have the word art, then associated is the word artist, or the word museum, or the word beauty. Right? But this, this word art appears in an associative context. Art belongs in a museum or a gallery. It doesn't belong into the trash shed. Or if it belongs into the trash shed, then it's not art anymore. You see? It's like a world that has these perceptual, because conceptual pathways. And those are all conditionings. And then there's consciousness, which is the fifth skanda. In consciousness, the easiest way to think about consciousness is conceptual thinking. So in other words, concepts already appear in the naming of perception, but then when these concepts are put together into structures of thought, you know, whole conceptual worldviews appear, ways in which we make the world actionable. You know, the word actionable just means something like you have a, a conceptual you have a conceptual framework that you can act on. So the fascinating thing about the human mind is that we can create conceptual frameworks that can be uh, put together independent of the presence of the thing that we're talking about. I don't know if you've noticed this, but, you know, to give a very simple example is I could talk about the stove in the kitchen right now. It's, we, we don't see it. But those of us who know the stove, but even those of us who don't know our stove, understand what I mean by a 10-burner kitchen range, right? You, you, have the, you know that concept. So when I say, you know, would you please put a kettle on to the stove? You would all know how to do it. So in the absence of the stove and the kettle and the water, I can talk about all those things. And, you know, you could follow along and say, yeah, putting a kettle on a stove, you know, and then you are, 
wrapped up in a representational world. We are representing. It's not present, but we're representing it. And as we're living with these representations, we can construct actionable worlds in the absence of that world. And this also means we can imagine worlds that aren't existing in existence yet. We can make them up. But the important thing is, even though they're made up, they could be actionable. We can envision something. We can envision to treat each other better or something, you know, if we were, if we were idealists. Or we can envision a world in which it doesn't matter how we treat each other, which then we're nihilists. Or, I don't know, I'm just making this up. <laughs> we can also imagine worlds that are not actionable. This is something that Fuss doesn't do. She doesn't, I think, she doesn't imagine worlds that are not actionable. That's a very human thing to do. <laughs> Fantasy fiction. Fuss, I think, has concepts like what it is like to jump up a tree. When she's like that, she has the concept. And then she enacts the concept by jumping up. <clears throat> but it's in a present world. Okay, these are, we could say, these are the components of the mind, or this is how consciousness aggregates. Now, I said consciousness is the actionable conceptual thinking, or also thinking that isn't actionable, but then it is in relationship to it being actionable, because that's how we recognize that it's not actionable, if you imagine a world that doesn't exist. But it's interesting, why do we create worlds that don't exist? Usually as a background to imagining things that are actionable, like you could create a fantasy world in which human beings interact with each other in a different way, against the backdrop of a fantasy world, but how people interact in that world is actually actionable. That's why, say, a fantasy novel could be interesting, because it's not that it's completely removed from reality. There are aspects in it that are of particular interest. It's highlighted by the characters that don't exist. Anyway, that's how I see it. Which keeps, this is a very kind of irrelevant aside, but I'll say it anyway. I have this curiosity about why superhero movies are so popular in our time and age. I mean, we clearly don't have these superpowers, so why are we interested in that? What does it point to? Like, it looks like every second, every other movie is a superhero movie. There's a big audience for this. What's being, you know, anyway, that's really not important for the five scans. So, consciousness on the one hand is this actionable conceptual thought, but consciousness is also the the functioning the the how those five are functioning together so it's also the aggregation and the accumulation of those five because they're all aspects that are functioning together that make consciousness possible so feeling also belongs into consciousness the the senses functioning belongs into consciousness. So one definition of consciousness could be consciousness is what happens when you wake up in the morning. This is maybe this is the best definition of consciousness. Not very scientific, but it is, you know, phenomenologically accurate. Consciousness is what happens when you when you wake up in the morning. And what happens when you wake up in the morning is that all these five standards are functioning and they create a cognizable world 
in other words, a word that world that we can name and recognize, meaning we can cognize it and recognize it, meaning we're perceiving certain things as the same. And based on cognizability, we we achieve predictability. Like, oh, when I wake up in the morning, my room will still be there. Like, my bedroom will still be there. It's not I'm going to be transported to a different realm. I expect it to be there. I mean, the world is predictable. And the world is chronological. Things happen one after another. And the world is meaningful. In other words, we can identify how certain things are in the service of other things, so they have meaning for those others, like for the... We derive meaning by belonging to a larger context. And you are waking up into this consciousness, which is the product of the five skandhas functioning together. Okay. This all takes a little longer than I thought. Now, so the second way to speak, speak about it is to de-aggregate the five skandhas as, we could say, meditative domains. So something you could recognize is that when you walk around in your ordinary life, meaning in consciousness, waking, you have all sorts of actionable thoughts. Like, yeah, uh, let me go through this door, open the door. It's like you're not thinking those thoughts, but if somebody asked you, what are you doing? You could, you could say what you're doing. Oh, I'm going through this door because I want to go outside. And what do you find outside? We find this thing outside. I'm going for a hike or I'm going to my car. The world is, you know, the world we live in is already named and it's actionable all the time. And because how we enact the world and ourselves in that actionable world is so automated most of the time, we don't really have to think about it very much. But we could at any moment in time. And if you can, you are thought of as a kind of you know, crazy person. People, you, You're in trouble. People will think you're in trouble. You don't know what you're doing. What were you thinking? This is a problem if you don't live in an actionable, already named world. Who are you? And you say, I don't know. And people start to worry about you. How old are you? I have no idea. When were you born? I don't care. So what you want to feel is that you're always already living in an actionable, conscious world, meaning cognizable, predictable, chronological, meaningful. This is already happening. You don't have to do much about that. Now, what's also interesting is that when your actions are so automated that you don't have to think them in order to do them, your mental capacity is freed up to think about potential other actionable worlds, like you might daydream about something, or you can think about the past. And you know. So you can be very removed from what you're actually doing with your thoughts. Your thoughts are freed up to be all over the place. You've noticed this. Now, I'm talking about de-aggregating the five skandhas in, through meditation, so I'm going to um, make you feel out this situation of meditation. So as you're entering into the meditation hall and you're approaching your cushion, you live in an actionable conscious world. You know the forms of how to approach the cushion. You know how to get onto the meditation platform, etc. So when you sit down, you know how to sit in this posture and then your mind is free to go and dream up other actionable worlds or regret what you've done in the past and so forth. Have memories.
you may be thinking about a certain kind of project, like I have this to do, which is like, now you're getting really involved with, you know, a certain kind of thinking that is about something. Well, meditation is an invitation to let that go. Because you're sitting still, you don't have to think about anything, really. You don't need to think about anything in order to sit. And so it is a release. Now, this is important. It is a release of this actionable world. You just release this need to think about your actionable world. You find a way not to do it. And what appears when you find a way to release the need to enact the, the, your actionable world through thinking, because you can trust it, you can just sit and breathe and just feel your body. This is, uh, these are instructions for meditation, right? You cross over into the domain of associative mind. And so certain dreamlike images appear, or fragments of thought, or just certain words that are floating around, and but they're not connected into a structure. Memories come up. Freed from the need to enact your world, you can just, you know, notice the past. In this realm of an associative mind, everything you've ever experienced, plus things you have been thinking or conclusions that you have come to uh, in your life that are just kind of there, or a poem that you've that you've recited uh, as a kid, or that can be present and just be floating in an associative way, not in a linear connected way. And this would be the experiential domain of the fourth skanda. It is a wider feeling than consciousness. Consciousness is kind of narrow and linearized, if that's a word, and associative mind is just wider. By releasing this constraint, which is actually a kind of grasping, you enter into this wider feeling of an associative mind that actually brings up your various conditionings. So it also brings up certain emotions, maybe. When you have this memory, then it's accompanied by sadness, or anger, or so forth. So even while you're sitting, and the person you're angry with is not there, that anger can surface. Now, if you're uncomfortable with this more open, wider feeling, you can tighten it up into any time and like pick up one image, pick up one thought fragment, pick up one uh, emotional reaction, and think about it. Then you're crossing back into, into the domain of consciousness. You can release it and enter into this wide associative feeling. Or you can pick one of those aspects up that are floating around and turn them into conscious thought. You see what I'm saying? This, of course, happens automatically or habitually, but what we're talking about is, you know, technically we could call this meditative deconstruction, which is first you have to notice the threshold in which you are released into associative mind, and then you have to learn to stay comfortable there in order to just let that happen and not tighten it up into consciousness. One way, one reason we tighten it up into consciousness is because we're defending against all the stuff that could happen in associative mind. Freud discovered this by putting people on a couch. They had to lie down to get, in, to get into associative mind because when, when they were standing up in their actionable world, they weren't able to access the things that were not conscious.
it's not un- so Freud thought this Freud thought of this threshold as that which is repressed from consciousness which is partially true because we are defending against it by feeling obligated to think about stuff but buddhism doesn't even buddhism doesn't think about repression and unconscious it thinks more as like there are layers of consciousness so we call this top layer consciousness but i said the whole thing is called consciousness too so this is a layer of consciousness and we can call it associative mind and it feeds consciousness all the time. So in between your linear thinking, there are always these fragments and images that feed it. But we're paying attention to the conscious thought. We're not paying attention to the underlying layer of associative mind. But in meditation, you can bring associative mind into the foreground, or let's say you can release this habit of thinking consciously and drop into it and inhabit it. And you just let come... You let that which comes come, and you know, don't tighten it up. Now, there is this Zen instruction that says, you know, when a thought comes, just let it come and then let it go, like clouds in the sky. Well, if those images and fragments of thought and so forth, they're floating around, and they're floating around in the sky, and You know, sometimes the sky is clear. No clouds are floating around. And you can notice that in meditation. Sometimes no image comes up, or no perception comes up, no no thought fragment comes up, no memory comes up. And the sky is clear. This is better to wait for than to try to get to. Watch out for those, say, gaps between one image and another image, or one thought fragment and another thought fragment. In, those, in that gap, there's actually... If you can learn to, to um, hang out in that gap without freaking out that your mind has to produce a thought, you can get very easily actually comfortable with being in a space in which there is no thought, not even an associative one. When you, when you enter those gaps of no thought, you're entering the realm of perception. Because you can now be actually sensitive, and this is one of the main, I think this is one of the main targets of mindfulness practice, is you can now, I said, perception is perceiving something and then as something. You can be focused on this object without knowing what it is or without naming it. You just see it. See the light on it. See its shape. Actually, when you see all these aspects, you are focusing on the light. You're focusing on the shape. You're focusing on the particular kind of black. You're noticing that this has a dent. So there's actually there are micro foci in in the in the focus of you know this, and they and the the more detailed you become, the harder it is to name anything. By the way, this is also a mirror. So okay, you can focus on your face in the mirror. You see what I'm saying? You can enter into sense activity that is unnamed. But then you can also name it, and you can peel the name off of the sense impression, or you can put the name on, or you can try to put a different name on. If you habitually kind of If you habitually condition to when a name arises in relationship to a particular sense object, and that and that name is in an associative field, and you have to follow that associative field and think linearly about it, you you feel like you live in an inevitably conditioned world in which when something arises, it has a name, it's 
in a certain context, and this is how I'm thinking about it. But when you can begin to see the world without naming it, lots of possibilities arise. They could be named differently, etc. Right? So the way we practice this in meditation is that you, you, um, you, you just staying with a percept without naming it. Listen to the sounds in the garden. This, these, these, uh, this sequence of sounds we just heard, does it have a name? Is it a gate? Is it a gate slapping against uh, uh, its frame? Yeah. But is it that when you just hear the sound? Maybe, you know, you, you can experience a genuine feeling of not knowing. I had this experience with my mother when I was a child. I, I, I always heard these sounds at night, you know, before going to bed, and I didn't know what they were. And it was very disturbing. It's like I asked her once, like, what is this sound that happens every night? It's like I didn't know what it was, but the sound was very vivid. Maybe you want to know what it is now that I told the story, but I'll, 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 I'm not telling you. <laughs> no. <laughs> Much of the world is like this. We don't know what it is. It's important to get comfortable with this. I was very uncomfortable with it as a child. So my mother told me, oh, it's the neighbors, you know, uh, closing their window shutters. Oh. Now I know. I know what the world is. It falls into place. Okay, now, I'm sorry, this is taking a long time, but we have till 10, right? So it's a little longer than usual. I hope it's interesting enough. Now you can you can see that in this perceptual organization of a focus and a field and a name. Field, focus, name. Name is now in associative context, and then there is a way to put it together into linear thought. That you can release the focus from the name, but you can also release the focus into the field. And you can like not look at something in particular and just look at the whole field, or not... Concentrate on one sound, but listen to the whole field from which sound emerges, which is silence. And when you don't conceptualize things, when they don't get named, you are slipping, inadvertently, you are slipping into a world of feeling. You're not thinking the world. You are feeling the world. Because, as I said, there's the materiality capable of being sensed, and then we have a feeling about it. So, instead of thinking the world, if you slip into feeling the world, you can have a certain feeling about a particular focus. Now, maybe let's go away from this uh, this object, this bowl, and just... Um, Say, if you look at a person, which is the focus for you, of your perception, you have a certain feeling about, you know, they, they appear to you a certain way. Or this room has a feeling. When you come from outside, there's a feeling of being outside. And then you enter into a room, and it's a little cooler, or it's a little warmer, and there's a certain atmosphere, and we can feel that atmosphere. We can feel the atmosphere of the person. We can feel the atmosphere of the room. We can feel the atmosphere of, a, of an art object. We can feel the atmosphere of a color. Red has a different atmosphere than blue. It's not just the distinction is in the name. It's also in the feeling.
Now, one of the things that's really interesting to me is these these sort of little twists in the skandhas that, like, you can release the focus from the name or you can release the focus into the field or with feeling that it's presented in the first way the skandhas are presented, aggregates of mind. Feeling is always presented as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But please notice that the three categories are three categories. So basically, there are perceptions. When perception, if perceptions are perceiving something as something, then it's like I perceive this feeling as pleasant, or I perceive this feeling as unpleasant. It's also important to learn to just feel outside of the categories so that pain isn't automatically unpleasant. It's also just this feeling. It's a certain kind of energy. It's not, it's not automatically painful. Does that make sense? You are so conditioned to perceive the energy we call pain as unpleasant that you have a habitual tendency to immediately run away from it. This is a problem. This is one of the biggest problems. It is important to enter into the realm of feeling and leave the perceptual categories of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral behind. Just feel. Just feel the minuteness of differences and shift, you know, shifting how sensations shift. Now, another domain, the other, another thing that's important to know about this meditative domain of feeling is that it is the body. The body is feeling. So when we are engaged with the sense channels, seeing, hearing, and then the mind thinking about those sense channels, we actually leave the body attentionally, I mean, attentionally we leave the body behind. We forget about the body. But when in meditation you slip into the domain of feeling, the body comes back as sensation. And it comes back as sensation in a localized way, like I have this sensation in the area I call the heart or the chest or the solar plexus or the legs, but it also comes back as a feeling of the whole of the body, what you feel in the whole of the body. So the domain of feeling emerges, and it emerges also even in layers. A localized feeling, a global feeling, a feeling of the field, the field, the feel of the field, the feel of the focus, the feel of the body itself. I can feel something through my body, but I can also feel the body as the body. It's all much more complex than we think, or it's much, it can be much more articulated than we usually do because we're immediately in thinking. But we've left that behind for the, in this, in this, to, to get to this domain, you, you need to become comfortable with a mind that doesn't need to think that just can feel. And then, from feeling, you can release feeling into form, but form in this meditative way is simply the capability of sensing. You're discovering as a mental function your capability of sensing, which is awareness itself. I like to talk about it as aliveness because it also feels alive, but aliveness is a feeling of awareness. Awareness is just the capability of, of sensing. This is the, the most direct access you have to mind itself, which is sort of the mind noticing the mind. 
that all this stuff, form, feeling, perception, conditionings, and consciousness, can actually happen, depends all on a mind that is capable of sensing form. Materiality. Okay. This is the teaching of the five skandhas. How is it liberation? And with this I close. How is it liberation? It's liberation when those functions aren't in service of just producing, again, these words are really coarse, linear, actionable thought. When the, when the five skandhas are in service of that, you basically skip over them. It, all the details that I just described in how you deconstructed meditatively are basically not really attended to because they're just in service of creating consciousness within which you function as this person vis-a-vis -vis the world doing your stuff. It becomes a kind of prison because you can't get to the root of where it can be changed. And when the skandhas are liberated, they function, we can say, form functions as awareness, as I just said. This is maybe, this is maybe another talk, so we just have to, I'll just say that. And feeling, the, the, the skandha of feeling functions as presence. It's how the world is presenced through the body. Not how the world is thought, but how the world is presence. And also, because you are attending to the body, you are becoming a presence, both to yourself and others. This is a perceptible quality of a liberated mind, that it has a presence. And the third skanda is transformed into clarity. You are not confused into the, you know, this, this idea that this is a bowl. Yeah, you can treat it as a bowl, but it is, it is this whole mysterious way in which it is picked out from the field, given a name, and turned into an object. This is clarity. It's a kind of, it's a decisional process of how you want to go along with a certain framing of the world or how you want to reframe it. But you, you, you don't get caught in like, oh, this is how it is, or, oh, I believe my opinion. This all becomes choices in a field of clarity. And the fourth skanda is turned into intuition. Because you can allow this popping up of images or fragments of thought, you can allow those to just freely float and give you information from a, a, a depth of feel. Your whole, your whole, everything you've always experienced, uh, you, all, everything you've ever experienced is always potentially present contextually, and you can allow it to contextually arise and function through it as intuition. If you automatically have to turn it into a, a tighter thought, it's almost like it disappears from attention and it's immediately absorbed or, or repressed as Freud found. And so your, your functioning in the field becomes much wider in this associative way, and, and this is what we could call intuition. And consciousness, which before was, you know, your actionable world in which you were somewhat imprisoned, consciousness becomes uh, just applied thinking. When you need it, you'll think about something. And when you are done thinking about it, you can uh, let it go. Consciousness doesn't become like the medium in which you constantly have to be active in order to verify who you are. Because what you are is just this, this uh, aware presence with clarity. And, uh, and if you um, 
allow it an intuitive functioning. But, you know, that doesn't mean consciousness is a bad thing. It's bad when we are limited to it, or everything is in service of it. And then it's also only bad because it narrows our world so much. No, it's very important that we are able to apply our thinking skillfully to situations. So, do you have the rest of your life to play around with this? It's uh, not something we conclusively know because even though I have, I hope I have spoken about it intelligently now, the real target of our practice is to inhabit those domains and let them functioning, let them function freely in the service of benefiting all beings, which is why the, um, the beginning of the Heart Sutra begins with this image of a Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, which is a practitioner committed to compassion. Okay.